Hi, church. Have you ever had a moment that was not what you expected and a negative one that God has used for good? For example, because of COVID, we now have an online ministry. Now, no one wanted COVID. It's a a terrible thing. However, it's enabled us to do something that we couldn't do before and accelerated a process. And once things return to normal, we will continue to be able to minister to people who are unable to attend church physically. I remember a time a number of years back where through my own, I want to say stupidity, but maybe that's not the best word for it, but maybe my own zealous um, heart to have a faster car, I had done some modifications to my car which resulted in the engine blowing up. Um, Totally my fault. But through the rebuilding of that engine and the community around me um, to do with that car, I actually made some lifelong friends. And so through something that was terrible, God used it to create some good things and we actually was able to have some faith conversations through that community. I wonder if you've had something terrible happen in the past that is maybe even holding you back to this day. A tragedy, something that, that shouldn't have happened or, or that you wish never happened, but no matter what, it did happen. But maybe it's holding you back. Today we're going to look at how God took a tragedy, actually a, something that was horrendous, but actually was able to, to not justify it, but was able to take the effects of that and turn them into good. Still acknowledging how terrible it was and not detracting from that, but carefully and lovingly was able to use that event to do something incredible for the kingdom. Today we're going to continue in our series of Acts. And so before we do that, let's continue in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we continue in prayer and we look at actually an event that is horrendous, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take this lightly, nor did you, nor did the apostles, And there was actually an incredible amount of grief that was in this moment that we're about to read about in Scripture. But Lord, in that, your plans used that event for good. Not taking away from the severity of the event, but showing that in all things, you are able to turn something bad into something good. God, I pray today that we would have hearts that are open to to engage with those hard moments in our life and be able to see your hand at work in using those for good. God, we pray that we would be open to graciously and lovingly navigate those times in our life this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we, we pick up where we left off last Sunday. So we see that it's around about 30 AD. Rome is the superpower and there is a, a grassroots counter-cultural radical group that is starting to, to just absolutely take off like wildfire within this Roman community. That This new movement has been born. And last week we left off almost towards the the very end of Acts chapter 2. Now, if you've been following the Wednesday devotions, we picked it up there and we we unpacked that a little bit more. So we won't go into detail, but we are going to skim over that verse because it, it paints a picture of where we are as a church because by the end of today's message, we want to be 
at this place where Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which summarizes the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit will come on you. This is Jesus saying that you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Today we're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. That's where we're, we're going to end up at the end of the message. So we need to see where we are in Jerusalem first. So essentially what we see about to be lived out is the command that Jesus gave his church in Matthew chapter 28, where he says, go into all the nations and create disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I have commanded, and surely I am with you till the very end of the age. And we see this played out in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through to 47. We read this that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All of the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and their possessions and they gave it to those who were in need. And every day they continued to meet and gather in the temple courts And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what do we see? We see that there's daily devotion in God's word. We see true Christian community centered around the complete works of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. We see spiritual gifts that have been given and people are using the gifts that they have been given with the signs and wonders that are being performed. We see unity in Christ, the common unity which is around Jesus Christ. We also see that there is a a, a commitment within the early church. They meet daily in the temple courts, within the church that they were able to gather, but also in each other's home where they're sharing meals. We see uh, a commitment, that we see worship, and we see incredible growth, both um, in quality and quantity. Quality as they, they... devote themselves to the apostles' teaching to Jesus' command. Once again, it's Matthew 28. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so they're obedient to the apostles' teaching, which is the, the teaching of Jesus. But also quantity, as the Lord added to their number daily. Doesn't this just sound perfect? Doesn't it just sound like the church that we want to see? We see like this radical, un, un, unreasonable generosity as they're just giving of themselves, both in time and what they have, selling some of their possessions to give to those in need so that they're not distracted by finances. They can focus on the word and onto the teaching. The generosity of this church, the love of this church, the passion of this church. And he said that they, in verse 47, they had the favor of all the people. No one's looking down on them. Everybody wants to be a part of it. It sounds amazing. And I want to say, for the longest time, this is exactly the the kind of church that that I want us to be. And I still do. However, we also got to acknowledge that life isn't always like this amazing thing. Sometimes life can get turned upside down, which many of us have experienced. And so what do we do with the church? What does God do with his church when things get turned upside down? And that's what we're going to look at today. You see, during this incredible 
growth season in the very early church. By, the, by Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we see that the church has grown to about 5,000 members in a really short amount of time. And what we see is that the Sanhedrin, the, the leaders of the, the other church, the Jewish church at the time, are seeing what the Christian church are doing and going... It's growing quicker than we have for years. We don't, what's going on? We don't want that. We need to shut this down. And they have this temple, and the, the, as people teach in the temple, this young, up-and-coming leader emerges. Now, this guy is eloquent in the way that he speaks. He's got a really good understanding of the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophecies. He, he has a, a real boldness in how he speaks. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit to be able to to speak truth and to decipher the scriptures correctly. Um, and he's also um, positioned himself to have influence within the community. And so this young up-and-coming leader called Stephen has everything going for him. And Stephen is in the temple courts and he's, he's preaching to those that are around. And what he's preaching is making sense. And it goes against what the Sanhedrin are teaching. Because they're saying, someone's going to come that will save us. And he's saying, that person came and his name is Jesus. You don't need to wait anymore. You can stop this way of living and follow this way of living, which is the good news. And it's a free way of living, not bound by the, the legalistic way. And because of that, they didn't like it very much. So they, in um, Acts chapter sort of five and six, you see them starting to, to push against this and then they eventually create some false accusations and they throw Stephen in prison. And they bring him out before a jury and they start to say, is this what happened? And Stephen doesn't resist the false accusations, rather he uses it, because he's bold, as a teaching point. So we pick up the scripture in Acts chapter 7 verse 1. And then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? The false, false charges. Verse 2, to this he replies, brothers and fathers. We'll hit pause there for a second. Because the, the Old Testament and the, this temple, this, this Jewish way of living, was still sitting under a patriarchal system. It was male dominant. Women did not have a voice. Women did not play a big role. And we see once again the new covenant that Jesus comes to, to bring in is not just for, for the blokey blokes in this space. It's for all people, all generations, all nations, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And so we're going to see a change in the word. We, don't, we won't readdress it again, but I just want you to be aware that this is blokes only and we see a radical change, which is part of the spread because God's spirit is for each of us, not just for the blokes and to hear from the blokes and that sort of stuff, which is where we're, we are at the moment. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. We spoke about the Abrahamic covenant a few weeks back. And, and this is picking up from that. And what he does, Stephen, really eloquently, and I'd encourage you if, you, if you want to fast track the Old Testament and see how God's fingerprints were all the way through it, read Acts chapter 7. Stephen does an incredible job of picking out the, the forefathers of Christian faith and how God worked his way through the, the prophets and through the kings. An amazing picture and paints 
this true picture of God's plan in action leading to this person that they were expecting to come. And then he gets towards the end in verse 51. And, and by this point, he's, he's got all of the Sanhedrin on board. They're like, yeah, yeah, our God's amazing, our God's amazing. And then he goes, but, and this is a pretty big but that he's about to, to throw at the leaders of the church. You, and he points to them, you stiff-necked people. What does that mean? Does that mean you're all stressed and you need to get a massage? No. The, the idea of a stiff-necked people, that, that phrase comes from a farming term that was back in the day where you'd have, a, in those days, an ox, like a large bull, a large animal, and you'd be trying to lead it somewhere, and as you're trying to lead it somewhere, you would... You would um, have some sort of mechanism to steer it so it could pull the plough or pull the cart or pull whatever piece of machinery it was meant to pull and go in the direction as you steer it. But some animals were just so focused on doing their own thing and resisting and they wouldn't turn their neck and therefore they wouldn't turn. And so the animal would be called a stiff-necked animal. Now in that, it's dangerous because they're not turning. There could be a yeah, water or a cliff or anything or, or a hazard that they're not going to turn for. And the phrase sort of developed over the years to, to being arrogant and not open to listening and opinionated and all these things. And so this is what he's saying. He says, you are not open to listen. You are not able to see what's going on around you. You are just so focused on your way and it's totally wrong and it's dangerous. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there even ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, alluding to John the Baptist. And now you have betrayed and murdered him being Jesus. You who have received the law, and this is the big hit, that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. Who are these people? They are the teachers of the law. They are the keepers of the law. And so Stephen is saying that, that you have received the law through the angels but you have not obeyed it because you've missed who Jesus was. This didn't go down so well. We continue in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we see the end of a life of a young man with heaps of potential end at the same time as a young man starts his journey of persecution against the church. This horrendous act, murdering somebody because they didn't agree with him. They were closed-minded. They were stiff-necked. And everything he said was truth ended with him being killed. The very next verse is such a vital verse. 
in how God is able to use this moment in history to ensure that his church continues. You see, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read the first part of that verse says, And Saul approved of them killing him. And so we see a young man whose life on earth finishes at the same time as a young man whose life on earth gets a purpose, but it's not a purpose of God, not a purpose of good, but a purpose of evil. The verse goes on in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. We're going to hit pause again on that and just look at a couple of verses that, that are quite, quite um, intentional in this passage. On Wednesday at the devotion, I spoke about how it's really good to take out the numbers and titles in your, your Bible. While they're great for referencing, sometimes it's good to take them out and just read around a passage to get context. Uh, we put the, the words and the numbers in for referencing and they're good, but it's great to take them out. I'm going to say the opposite now. Sometimes it's great to have them in because they also paint a picture. Because Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says that Stephen, uh, sorry, Saul uh, approved of them killing him, being Stephen. And on that day, great persecution broke out in Jerusalem... And all except the apostles were scattered to Judea and Samaria. Now, while it was fear that scattered them, God's will still took place. God's plans still took place. Even though it was a, a horrendous act that caused it, God had good come out of that terrible thing. Now, does that mean we need to celebrate the evil, terrible things that have happened in life? No, not at all. The very next verse says, in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And so we see in verse 1 that the apostles stay back. In verse 2, we see godly men. And so we're assuming that that is the apostles with, with some others that did stay back have at the risk of their lives, at the risk of imprisonment, have taken Stephen and buried him and mourned deeply. And there is a space of sorrow, deep sorrow and grief. Meanwhile, God is still doing his plans, but there is still space to acknowledge those terrible things that have happened. In this case, it's a murder. And we see that there is appropriate and right times to stop and just be almost paralyzed in grief in this moment. But in the midst of that, God is still doing his plans. They are still unfolding. Now we see Saul once again enter into the story. But Saul, this is the same Saul that took the coats, the same Saul that approved of the stoning of Stephen. In verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women, and this is the change in the culture once again, and put them in prison. And there was something about the Jerusalem prison where they could do whatever they wanted to try and beat out Christianity within them. We sort of stop at this and take a breath because these are pretty heavy times. We see that straight away, we see that there's persecution taking place in this 
early passages in chapter 8. We see that the persecutions against them, the church seems to scatter. And so this beautiful picture at the end of Acts chapter 2 of them meeting together and breaking bread is now like, they're gone. What does that look like? How do you meet together? How do you break bread? What is it? What's going on? We see that there is deep grief and we see that there's persecution and, and those that have stayed behind are at risk of being thrown in prison. Ah, what's going on? Yet, God is still with them. The Holy Spirit is still with them. And because that the Holy Spirit, as we learned last week, the flame had separated and is now in each member, God's church isn't just fixed to a location. God's church is now spreading out. And so verse 4, we read that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And what the Sanhedrin was trying to stop is now being used as the tool to spread the church. And the 5,000 are now heading out and spreading the message wherever they go. For the next few passages, we start to see some of the stories of these, what does spreading the word look like? Here's an instance. Here's an instance. Here's a story. This is how they did it. This is what they did. This is how they did Incredible messages of spreading God's word. We'll share one of those briefly about Philip. In verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria to proclaim and proclaim the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip, they saw the signs that he performed and paid close attention to what he said. They didn't just take it, they listened. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now what what, let, let's pull this apart just a little bit and get some understanding of, of what's happening here. You see, if we go back, and we go back a long way, we're going to go back to about the, the 10th century BC, before Jesus, before Christ. So 10th century BC, we see that through King David, the, the promised land of Canaan has been united. And in that, there is a capital called Jerusalem, the, the the, the main capital of all that nation. Now, the 10th century BC, we see another king's come in and hasn't done a great job. And now the, the, the nation is sort of split into two tribes, the northern and the southern. And so now we see Judea, the south part, and we see the north part, Samaria. And so we see these, these two parts that are, are separated a, a little bit now. Now, in that, then 10th century BC, we see that Assyria, the superpower, comes to play. And Assyria comes in and conquers the northern part of this special land. And in conquering it, the the Assyrian people are now um, subject to Assyria. And what happens is their common practice would be to, to take the bulk of the people away to their land as slaves and teach them to live the Assyrian way. So now we've got those from Samaria over living the Assyrian lifestyle. But they'd also send some Assyrians to Samaria, to the lands they conquered, to oversee those that they left. Because they'd leave some people to farm the land and, and get crops and, of course, send it over to the, the leading country. And, and so after a, bit, a few years, we see that who are you, your kids going to marry? Those that are left. So you've got kids. Who are they going to marry in five, 10, 20 years um, after this has taken place. Who's left around to pick from to, to marry? Because if you don't marry, you, you die out. So they, they would look and, well, there's Assyrians. 
And so now we see those from Samaria are marrying the Assyrians. And what was supposed to be a, a special lineage, a group of people that are wholly set apart. Now there was 12 tribes, so you can marry within the 12 tribes. You weren't marrying your brother or sister, but you were meant to be, the Israelites were meant to marry Israelites because they're supposed to be set apart, and they're to live different, they're to act different, they're to dress different. And now we see that some of the Israelites in Assyria are marrying other nations and dressing like them and acting like them. Now from this point in history, this people group are looked down upon by those of Judah. Those that look, up to, look, look at them go, nah, they're, they're not pure bloodline, they've disobeyed, they're wrong. And they were now known, this people group is now known as the Samaritans. Now the Samaritans built a temple, much like the temple in the southern tribes. They built a temple and they worshipped God and they, they still tried to follow Yahweh, but it was a bit different. But they were looked down upon. So if you, if you cast your minds back, we see in, in um, the book of John, chapter 4, we see that Jesus is actually is compelled to go to Assyria, no, sorry, not Assyria, to go to Samaria to preach. To, to preach. Now in that, the, the wording in John chapter 4 says, I, I must go. It wasn't a straight path from where he's going. It's like us here in Ballarat going to Melbourne. It's a pretty straight path. Like we just take the highway. But instead, it's kind of like going to, from here to Melbourne via Echuca. You know, it's not straight, it's way out of the way, but Jesus said, I must go. And in John chapter 4, we see the incredible counter where um, Jesus has to go and he's sitting by a well, and there's a woman. And they have a conversation, and through that conversation, other people come, and through their interaction with Jesus, many people believed in who he was. And so we see Jesus starting to restore the nation back to him. And so now we pick up with this guy called Philip who also must go to the nation. Now, Philip is just a servant of the church. He's, he's just, yeah, just an incredible, passionate follower of Jesus. In, if he went back 50 years, he would be the equivalent of a deacon within the church, for those that remember that system. Uh, in our modern, in our current way that we operate as a church, we would see him as a leader over a ministry. So he would be running one of the ministries of the church, incredibly passionate, incredibly dedicated, and so Philip is so dedicated to God's church and such a, a faithful servant that Scripture actually gives him a title. And by Acts chapter 21, he's called Philip the Evangelist. He is so passionate about sharing God's word with others. And so we see this passionate person go to Samaria to preach God's word. And because he's preaching God's word, people are drawn back to him. What we start to see here is a pattern. Because you see, if in the Old Testament we had the, the center of God's kingdom, which is Jerusalem, then we see God's nation for his people being Canaan or the promised land. We see that that is fractured as well now. And so slowly, firstly, God is saying, I'm going to restore the capital of my people to following me. I'm going to start in Jerusalem. Then I'm going to restore the nation. And then I'm going to restore the rest of the world. And the same pattern that broke down in the Old Testament is being restored in the new church. 
And, and in this, we can start to see a glimpse of God's plan for us. And I, I fully believe, as what we read in Acts chapter 2, of one of the, the primary places that God wants to start is at home. If God's trying to restore his home first, the, the, the place where he was, the temple, in that space, knowing that God is in our hearts and, and can't, wherever we go, God's with us. But God focuses on the, start, on the home, saying, firstly, I want you to meet in each other's houses. I want your house, your home, to be a place where God is present. I want you to restore there first. Then we're going to restore the land and then we're going to go to the ends of the earth. But in the midst of that, because your home is where your heart is, your home is where your family is, your home is where your people are. And as you take that, as you go somewhere else and you, you plug in and you, you, you find your people and you, you lead people to Jesus and they're your people, and as that moves, there's still huge opposition in the book of Acts. And we're going to backtrack just a little bit and take another run at this because we've, sort of, we've, we've picked up now that we see the God's church is spreading and as they spread, they, they're rejoining the, the tribes and rejoining the nation. But there is this thread of persecution. So we're just going to backtrack to Acts chapter 8, verse 3, where we saw that Saul began to destroy the church going from home, because where is where's God's plan? It starts at home. So he's trying to destroy it at home. Home, house to house, dragging off both men and women and putting them in prison. Now we see that the, the biggest advocate... For destroying the church in Saul is, is a huge problem. Saul is doing a really good job. He, he, is, he is an agent of Satan. He is stopping people from receiving this incredible message of joy and hope and peace that is found in Christ. And the, the language of Acts is that they are saving people. Peter's first message last week we heard was, Save yourself from this current generation. If someone was drowning and you save them, you are stopping them from dying. And what Saul is doing in this is Saul is trying to stop people from being saved. So in, in, in doing that, he is causing them to spend an eternity without God. And so they are dying. And in that, he is an agent of Satan. He's an agent of the devil at this point. And I say there's times in life where people are agents of Satan. They're stopping us from being on our journey. They're stopping us from being who God is calling for me. They're, they're running interference, distracting us from doing that. And sometimes we think, how do we combat that? Well, sometimes God fights his own battles and we just get to watch. And what we see here is that the biggest, biggest advocate for destroying the church actually becomes one of the biggest champions of the church. Because here we see in Acts chapter 9, as we pick up after Acts chapter 8, where Saul is, is going from home to home, we see what happens to Saul. Meanwhile, Acts chapter 9 verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. <coughs> Excuse me. He went to the high priests and asked them for a letter at the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belong to the way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so people are finding the way through him. Uh, anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, once again, this inclusive um, kingdom that's for all people, might, be, might take them as prisoners in Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, 
Suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul cries out, who is it? It is Jesus. And it's incredible, as Jesus reveals himself to Saul, that the glory of Christ is so much that Saul can't even see anymore. He's blinded and the instructions are to, to go to a, a follower of Christ, go to one of these homes where God is so, so ripe and so central. Knocks on the door and the person, who is it? Saul. It's like, yeah, yeah, right, you're not coming in. I've heard about you. And there's, there's a little bit of fear. But God's spirit leads and they, they let Saul in and they pray for him and his, his sight's restored. And Saul's name is changed to Paul. And we hear that Paul is then titled later on in Scripture, Paul the Apostle. Paul the one that, instead of destroying the church, is the one that is birthing these churches all over the place, that is pioneering the church. Paul that is a great advocate for Christ rather than trying to, to fend him off. And so we see that the message is now journeying through Judea and Samaria and heading towards the end of the earth through somebody who has not journeyed like the disciples have. And so the disciples had been with Jesus all of his, his life, death and resurrection. Paul hadn't. Paul came in from nowhere. And so the, the, the beauty of this for us is that maybe you haven't grown up in church, you haven't had those experiences, maybe you're still wrestling with faith. And I want you to know that Paul was just like that. He didn't get it. But all of a sudden, through an encounter with Christ, everything changed. And now he's just learning about who Jesus is, and he's just on fire. And I want to say that's such a beautiful thing to, to bear witness when we see people that are on fire for Christ because they've found him for the very first time. So where do we leave off today? What are the challenges in the passages that we've covered? Firstly, God can use tragedy for good. It doesn't detract from the moment. The disciples, uh, the, the apostles were deeply, deeply mourning the loss of, of their friend who had been murdered. It doesn't detract from the severity of those moments. But God can use those moments for good. I've met with so many people that have been through a traumatic time in their life, which now, because of God's healing presence in their life, are able to share that with others. And there is a bond between them and somebody else that have been through something like that that other people don't get. And because of that, they are linked because of Christ in it, not because of the trauma, but because Christ has been able to restore and encourage somebody else up in that area of whatever that looks like. God can use tragedy for good. It doesn't detract from the tragedy, but God can use it for the good. The second thing we learned is that the God is starting point in our lives is our home. And so I wonder, how can your home show Christ's impact to the world around you? If the starting point is home, how does home look for your family? How does home look for your friends? How does home look in your, your daily rhythms, your daily routines? Are you spending time in Scripture? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you spending time being un, unrealistically, unreasonable in your generosity towards others? Are you hungry to meet? Are you hungry to, to be who God has called you to be? and to be transformed into who he wants us to be into the future. What does home look like? And the third thing that we, we picked out today was that every member was active. As they went, they preached the word. 
And I wonder for us, what does it look like for us to preach the word this week? Now, when I see preaching the word, what I see was Philip went to a city. And in that, he started doing what the Spirit was leading. Now, we may not be wanting to preach in a city, but maybe it's the way that you act when you're at the supermarket. Maybe it's the way that you act when you're on social media. Maybe it's the way that you act towards the teachers at school or, or your kids at home. Maybe the way that you act is the way that you preach the word because Christ is in you. And as we learned last week, that the, the Holy Spirit, the set-apart spirit, are we listening to that spirit or our own? Are we allowing God's spirit to be the thing that comes through or are we giving into our own spirit? We end... Today's passage of Acts with this thought. In the midst of a murder, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of fear as they scattered, in the midst of huge opposition, God will build his church. And the God that was present in Acts is the same God that is present today. And the same God that continues to build his church, no matter what happens in the state of our world, no matter what happens in the state of our country, no matter what happens in the state of our state or our city or our home, God will build his church. He has proven it time and time again. And the same God that, that spread the, the message of hope in the book of Acts is the same God that wants to spread his message of hope throughout our lives and the lives of those that we come in contact with. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you will build your church. In the midst of tragedy, you will build your church. In the midst of our homes, you will build your church. In and through your people, you will build your church. And even when there is huge opposition that is beyond our capacity, you will send your spirit to, to shine light into those that are persecuting and, and lead them to yourself. Lord, we thank you that you will build your church. We pray that even in the midst of wherever we are today, that we would be reminded of a good God that loves his people and who will build his church. In Jesus' name, amen.